passages tonight. First Peter chapter three is where you can prepare to begin. And if you have uh, tonight's notes, you'll see lesson five written at the top there. It says witnessing in some bold print there, and um, that's where we'll be this evening. Just to recap, <clears throat> if you haven't been able to be with us the last few weeks, and I hope that you uh, have, but if you haven't, I believe the lessons from the last few weeks are available online, and um, I think if you go to the Connect page, they're there, either under the recent sermons or classes or wherever they may be, you can find them there on the website, and if you haven't been able to hear those or listen or miss some, I hope that you'll listen and follow along with them, not just because of, oh, they're some great lesson, but because of uh, what it implicates for us as a church, that it is speaking to who we are as people. Now, you notice that within this member's class the last few weeks, um, hopefully you, you may have noticed what has not necessarily been what we have focused on or talked about. We as a church, uh, we're an organization as in, in the world's eyes, we're an incorporated entity, we are a body of people who has called themselves together uh, as a group for a certain purpose, and we've declared all of those things. We have a set of bylaws that uh, we kind of modernized, brought up to modern language and code and all these different things in the last few years, and it's long and um, at times boring reading because of some of the legal jargon and that kind of thing in it. That, those are there. That's not been our prevalent focus. We haven't even necessarily gone through, okay, here's our statement of faith, and that's an important thing. If you haven't gotten one of those, and we went through that a, a year or so ago, or if you're new to us, you haven't gotten one, I, I encourage you to get it, read through. There's a lot of scripture there based why we believe what we believe as a group of people. And it doesn't mean that as individuals we believe everything identical to one another, that there's some authority over us that says you have to do this or say this a certain way. No, we as a church are under the authority of Scripture. We are first under that authority as individual believers, but then as a church as a whole. But that even hasn't really been our primary focus. You can look at those things, see those things, and walk through those on your own. The last few weeks, what has been our primary focus is, what does the Bible teach us about the purpose of the church? Uh, what are the things that are taught as a whole of the church throughout the, the New Testament? What did Jesus exemplify to us for as himself or as his, uh, to his disciples and apostles? What did the, those apostles then teach others and uh, teach the churches that they go out to pastor and plant and start? What do we find from Scripture is the emphasis. And we said there's no <coughs> list, uh, there is no set of bylaws in the New Testament. This is what you have to say or do as a church. It doesn't say that you function a certain way. There's not even a, a whole lot given to us in the New Testament about uh, a church polity or government or technicalities and all those kinds of things in very specific ways. What is given to us is the instruction of the purpose, our purpose as a church. And so the last few weeks, what we've primarily been focusing on is what does it teach as a whole all the way through that must or should be true of us as believers, but as believers brought together as a church. The first week we talked about belonging, that the New Testament consistently teaches about the church as a group of people that belong to one another. That as individuals, we first belong to God. We first belong to the Lord. We first 
are related as individuals to Jesus Christ. That He is the Son of God makes us children of God. But that being children of God, we are then brothers and sisters of Christ to one another. And that there should be accountability, responsibility between us as the family of God. We are called to belong. And the importance that Scripture places on finding other Christians that are near you, that are around you. If you think about the local church in the days of uh, Christ or in the days of His apostles as He had ascended, you're thinking about a lot of them are smaller metropolitan areas even in compared to the world today. But it was the Christians in a certain location or area would find each other link to each other, live life out together, love one another, and that He calls us to belong to one another in certain ways. We also said, uh, we talked about belonging, we talked about our responsibility then to gather, that God calls us to gather together for in a variety of ways and for a number of reasons. Primarily a purpose to edify, to encourage, and to grow and learn from one another. And through the teaching and admonishment of God's Word, the preaching of God's Word, we're called together to worship Him, which is first obedience uh, to what He has taught in His Word, and then a response, and that could be singing, it could be our attitudes, it could be our display of service to one another. Uh, we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, what it means to care for one another and what it means to serve one another, to serve the Lord as a local church. And that out of our care that God places on our lives, that He relieves us from our, the gospel relieves us of our burden of sin so that then we can care about the burdens of others. It doesn't mean that our burdens go away in terms of the daily burdens and difficulties that we have in life, but our ultimate burden of sin and God's wrath against us, it's been lifted. And so if that's the case, if a human being can be right with their Creator then that human being can then be freed to live in the freedom that Christ gives in a kind and generous way to others, to care and to serve. That we serve together. We serve upward, serving the Lord by how we declare Him and give Him glory. That we serve inward as a church. That we serve one another. That where there are needs that we can meet and do good to one another, we do that. But then we also serve outwardly to those that are around us, to those that are lost to those that are in our community. It could be as individuals because you are an extension of your church to the community. And then there's other times that it is a concerted effort, that it's together, all the members of the body reaching out to those that are around us. And so we've talked about these things the last few weeks. This is what God calls us to. These are our priorities as a church, that we are a group of Christians in a local place uh, together now, I know modern world has allowed us to spread that out a little bit. Can you can you think about this? If you lived hundred years ago, let's maybe a little further back. Let's say you lived hundred fifty years ago for sure. But let's say a hundred years ago, that if you live, we have people that live out in King William in Saint Stephen's Church. We have people that live near Louisa. We have people that live in Midlothian. Some all the way near Dinwiddie, Chesterfield, Henrico, Hanover. If you think about this about 100, 150 years ago, there's a really good chance that you would go to church with very few of the people that you go to church with today. You probably wouldn't even know a good majority of the people that you do because you're so confined geographically. But we're still local in the sense of we are within easy physical reach of each other. 
And so God has brought us together in this locality to reach the world to, by obedience, carry out His great commission of the church, which is to go, to preach, to make other disciples like He has made us, and to baptize them, to teach them and uh, show them the way of Christ in the Scripture and His teachings, and then to continue to do that, not just here, but to make an effort to do that around the world. And so that's what we're going to be talking about <clears throat> this evening. And let's look there, if you will. You see it says at the top there. Sometimes we have this, if you like, um, Dan would be proud of me tonight. My stepfather, he uh, uh, loves baseball and he loves particularly, uh, I almost said angels in the outfield. He would kill me if I said angels in the outfield. What's the, what, is that the right one? If you build it, they will come. What is that? Field of dreams. Yeah, yeah, not angels. Don't tell him I made that mistake. Oh boy, that would be bad. Field of Dreams, I think, is the movie. And if you build it, they will come. And it's like, build this baseball field in the middle of nowhere, and then people will come from all over, and these ghost spirit players will come out and play baseball. It's weird if you think about the concept. But build it, and the attraction will be there, and people will just come to it. That's great for a movie. It's not a good evangelism tactic. In fact, it's terrible, because it's the opposite of what Scripture teaches us. It does not say build so that others come. It says you go to others and to the world. Now, it doesn't mean that in our modern day and culture that people don't see a church and mentally associate a need for help or whatever it may be or spiritual guidance. I think we have some of that still in us as a culture and society in our world. But most of the world would not drive by this building and think, I must and need to go there. Now, that's not how most believers, unbelievers are brought to a place of believing in Christ. You see there's a second line, it says, <coughs> it says most visitors that come. And what I mean by visitors there, I, I speak in a little bit broader term, I'll clarify. Uh, people that are unsaved, that don't know Scripture, that have not heard of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, are not going to naturally feel some desire to come or be brought to a church to gather with other believers. That's not in them. The gospel must first go into the heart of a man before he is changed in that way. And so most people that would come to a church, and what I mean by that is most people that have, have no knowledge of the gospel of Christ that would actually enter a church, typically they are there because someone asked or invited them. And if they accept or invite that invitation, it is typically because a relationship has been built over some length of time with the person that sought to bring them in. And so as we talk tonight, let's not confuse the two of inviting to church with evangelism. They're not exactly the same. They can go together and contribute to one another. But we're speaking tonight particularly about witnessing. Notice if you would, 1 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 13. Now, the first idea here is that the heart of a person, a heart of a human being, that's the heart of evangelism. Verse 13. And who is he that will harm you if he be followers of that which is good? And he's speaking to the church here and admonishing them and teaching them. You see back in verse 8, he says, Be mindful, be all of one mind, having unity, have compassion one of another, love as brothers or brethren, be pitiful, be courteous. And he's, he's saying this is how you respond to one another internally. But then verse 13, he says, he's speaking outwardly, externally. 
Verse 14, but if ye, if and but and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, and they may be ashamed that they that falsely accuse your good conversation, meaning your good lifestyle, your your way of living in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well doing than for evil doing. He gives us then the example of Christ. I want you to <clears throat> notice, if you would, as we think about witnessing, giving the gospel, a church that does not have this as a core of its drive of its motivation of its purpose is ultimately and i'll say this carefully but directly ultimately is not a church the the very mission of god given to his people that bind themselves together and call themselves a church his mission for them is to then reach others with that gospel and if a church neglects that call ignores the call, is apathetic to the call, or rejects that call, the church then ceases to be a church. It's like saying, I am part of a professional football team. And um, I, I am. You guys didn't know this. I'm part of it. There's several of us that have gotten together. Now, we don't, we don't like to exercise or run. Uh, we're getting old. We don't lift weights. Um, we are not coached well. We don't have skill or technique. None of us have ever actually played before. We're not a part of any league. Um, and we actually have never played a game. But we're a pretty good football team. Like, no, I'm not. I'm not. I can say I am. I can have a uniform. I can have a jersey. I can even buy pads and a helmet. I can talk and give great pregame speeches. But if no one comes out, and I'm not part of something that I actually get to participate and do what my established purpose is, I'm not actually that thing, am I? I'm not a football team. And a church that says, we do God's will, and they get excited about one thing or another, or they have a service, or they sing, or they praise, or they do all these things, but don't do this. They're not actually a church, are they? So notice, many of us have taken courses, we read books, we memorize verses, but the question really is, on this topic, but the question really is, are we engaging non-Christians on a regular basis deeper than at a superficial level? Sometimes we don't want to be salespeople uh, to the world. Of We don't want to be the religion people to our friends and neighbors, and so we're careful with how, how we establish it. Do you realize... The Christian faith is one of the only faiths in all of the world. It is the only faith that, in essence, asks its believers to then bring other converts in believing, not by conquering their bodies, not by conquering in war, not by conquering mentally, not by outgaining them in some political fashion or financial fashion, but that says, win the hearts of of those that would call themselves your enemies. It's the only one that says, bring them in in love by grace. And so as we are encouraged to do this, are we engaging? Sometimes we are scared off for one reason or another, but 
I gave you some space there. What are you can jot some down for yourself? What are some variety of reasons that our hearts commonly lack a motive or witness or desire to witness? I jotted down a, a couple uh, of my own. There could be a number of things. Sometimes, number one, a lack of success in the past. When when I don't feel like I'm having visible results, then I lack a desire to do so. That's not what God calls us to. He calls us to go. Sometimes it's the inconvenience that's involved with it. Sometimes it's the risk of being mocked or rejected. It is the risk of uh, putting a, a break or a fracture in a relationship. But here's the truth. As people, we typically speak out of the overflow of our hearts, don't we? And so if hope and faith and our Savior are regularly in our hearts, they will also regularly be on our lips. You get around a certain person that talks about their sports team all the time. It's what's in their mind. It's what's in their heart. You get around somebody that talks about hunting, fishing, hobby, whatever it may be. You get around a new grandparent that incessantly all they talk about is the new grandbaby because it's what's in their heart. I mean, they're picking up pictures and they said, this is him with his mouth open to the left. Here he has turned slightly to the right, his mouth still open. Here he is falling on the floor. Here he is still on the floor because he can't get up. You know, it's just they just show you every picture after picture after picture. Nothing wrong with that. I do that some with my own kids, but it's what's in our heart and mind constantly. And so what it's it's what comes out of our mouth to those that are around us. So why then is it that God doesn't come off our mouth? That Jesus is not regularly in our conversations because is it really deeply always in our hearts and minds our interests desires conversations our lives change when we set apart jesus in our hearts as the treasure that we love and our hope is in notice back in the verse in chapter 3 verse 15 it says sanctify the lord god in your hearts meaning set him apart he's calling the church he says hey you want to reach out to the world you're going to be accused. You're going to face difficulty. You're going to struggle. How are you going to get through that? You set apart your heart to the Lord and how you think about your God. You don't focus on those that you're going to. You don't focus even on those that are around you. You focus on the Lord. So I want you to think about this. The context of the church that Peter was writing to, the people that he is writing to a number of different places, but they're facing hostility toward the gospel. And I would dare say that <clears throat> there, there is an element in which our culture and society worldwide, I would say, yes, there definitely is. But even within our country or community, I think that there is some hostility toward Christ, toward Christianity, toward the Bible and God's Word. It's not always direct, obvious hostility until you reach a certain point of contradiction. But I would say, maybe even a, a better description of that would be, and you have it there, that we live in a gospel-hardened community. Hard toward it. Or, we'll say it this way, and the, here's how they think about the gospel. They're happy without the gospel. They're fine without it. So how do we respond to those things? Well, let's notice what First Peter calls us to. as a primary passage for this portion this evening. So notice, he calls us to three things in terms of reaching out even when the community around us might be difficult. He's writing to a very a church that is 
giving the gospel in a very difficult circumstance. It is not just, ah, we're indifferent, you're crazy, we don't like what you say. It's hostility toward them. They're being accused by Judaizers of not really following the one true God. They're accused of others of being legalistic toward them. They're accused of some as being odd and awful and paganistic. I mean, there is hostility toward them as a church. They're in a difficult climate and community. Sometimes we think if I could have just lived in the Bible days, things would be a little different because nobody had ever heard the gospel. It's all fresh. We can do it. No, they face just as much difficulty as we do. So how do we <coughs> speak the Lord and live the gospel into our context even today? Well, here's three things. Number one, practical goodness to Christ-centered reverence. And number three, a daily readiness to consistently give the gospel to others. I want you to notice, it says, number one, a practical goodness. Notice if you would in verse... Well, let's go back. Verse number eight. It says, finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, or uh, meaning having others on your mind, merciful, be courteous. Verse nine, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. You see what he, you understand what he's saying here? When when people are evil towards you, when people rail against you, respond with what? Blessing. Knowing that you are there unto called, that you should inherit a blessing. He says, when others curse you, look down on you, and, and are hardened to your gospel, respond with blessing. Because you have been given an eternal, everlasting blessing. There is no end of what God has given you. And talk about a motive for the gospel is not how far can I, how patient can I be with this person's attitude toward me? That's not what we should ask. But how long-suffering is God's patient toward us? It's eternal. And so it says, knowing that you've received this, extend it to others. Verse 10, for he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil. His lips, that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil, do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it, pursue after it. Verse 12, for the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Verse 13, and who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? You say, who's going to harm you if you follow that which is good? Well, it happens, yes. But verse 14, but... If you suffer for righteousness, think happy are ye. Be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. Sanctify, Lord God, in your hearts. Be ready always. Verse 16, having a good conscience, whereas they speak evil of you. He says, live. We, we just read those. We kind of hastened there at the end. Live a good life. I mean, it sounds like it should go without saying. Christians should be good people. I mean, just let that sink in for a moment. And what I mean by good people, I don't mean good as by defined by the world or defined by somebody or something else or this is how you can be good to me. But according to the principles of Scripture, what is good? Christians should be just very good people. And that, there's so much that we could go into this and we won't for time's sake tonight, but I want you to think about this. The great commandment and the great commission are not enemies. They're companions. The great commandment that God gives is this. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love Him with everything that is in you. And he says the second commandment that is attached to that, like to it, love the Lord your God and attached to that, love your neighbor as yourself. But he also tells us to go into the world to preach the gospel, disciple men of all nations and people and call them. Well, those two things go together. Say, which one should I do? Love people or give them the gospel? Yes, love people and give them the gospel. In loving them, give them the gospel. We should be good people called to a life of love and good deeds before a watching world. Even if we feel like someone doesn't deserve our good response and actions, we don't deserve God's good mercy toward us, do we? He says, I want you to ask, are people in your life drawn to ask questions about the hope that is in you? Someone that is good in this way, lives a life of... Have you ever noticed that? Someone with great hope can live with great love toward others. Because the hope says, in a broad sense, the hope says things can get better. So as long as I feel that I have hope, I can then love others. Christians have eternal hope. And so we should be able to extend immense, unconditional love because our hope is and springs eternal, forever. And so when we live out our lives in this way, with practical goodness, it's a way to get this conversation started. Peter says one way is to bless and do good to people. Once you ask yourself, are you displaying God's goodness or Jesus' goodness through the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, long-suffering, peace, compassion, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and self-control are those descriptors of your lives. Sometimes we have these weird excuses as people, don't we? To say, well, that's just not who I am. Here's the problem. Jesus has called you His own to sanctify you and make you what you are not. (laughs) Just because in your natural flesh, in my natural flesh, I am not, fill in the blank, A, B, C, or D, I'm not naturally... Joy, peace, long-suffering, love, gentleness, goodness, faith. I just say, I, that's just not who I am naturally. Exactly. Scripture has called us to be sanctified and move away from the natural man. And so we are called to display hope to those that are around us. And notice it says in verse 15, Be ready always to give an answer to every man. Notice this, that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. He says, when someone asks, how do you live with hope like that? How do you live in a world that's so damaged and bruised and destroyed? How do you have the outlook that you do? How is it that the whole office, I'll just use a practice sense, how is it that our whole office just talks nonstop about politics and who's in control and who does what and what new rule and whose opinion and they fight and they fuss How is it that they decided this side or that side and this side disagrees? How is it that they talk about something that is disturbing or that is sinful or that is disgusting or that is uh, um, vile? How is it that everyone talks about that and you don't live that way? You're not consumed with those things. How is that? That's a question someone should ask of us. And so when it points and it looks to what he's pointing to in this verse be ready to answer when someone asks, how do you have this hope? Let me ask you, are we living lives that would make anyone ask where our hope is coming from? 
Is our hope visible to others by the way that we live toward them? Number two, notice this, a Christ-centered <coughs> reverence. You see that in verses 14 through 17. But and if you suffer for righteousness, happy are ye, be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. I want you to think about this. It's sort of a, a changed, it's a redirection of fear. Notice in verse 14. Don't be afraid of them, but, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. In essence, here's what he's saying. Don't be afraid of people. Be afraid of God. And what, he's not saying be afraid like I'm cowering in fear because God might hurt or abuse me. No, no, no. He's saying don't be so consumed with everyone around you that that changes and affects your actions and your lives. Be so consumed with the greatness of God, the reverence, the reverent fear of the power of the God of the universe, the Creator that has extended Himself to us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Fear Him, not others. As it tells us in the Gospels, fear not those that can't destroy the body and soul, but fear the one that can destroy both body and soul. The God of all things. Fear Him, not others. And when our gaze is on Christ and centered on Him, it frees us from the fear of others that traps us. The respect and awe of Christ that motivates us to serve Him. There is no one else like Jesus. That's the message of the church. There is no one else like Him. And so we as a church body, as a whole, as a group, our message should be to declare, you can be focused on the world around us. You can be focused on whatever you want to be focused on. There is no one like Jesus. You can be focused on who's in control. You can be focused on who has decided what. You can be focused on who says what, who has the most money, who has the most power, who has the most say-so. You can be focused on who is the most outwardly beautiful, who has the most talent, who has the best, you fill in the blank, world. You can be focused on all of those, but the declaration of the church is this. There's no one like Jesus. And so we as individuals are called to witness to others by being good people and living in a way that will make people say, where is that hope from? And we should live in such a Christ-centered way that they look at us and say, you don't think about the world the same way everyone else does. Why is that? And then that brings us to the third. That gives us a daily opportunity, a readiness, a readiness that is represented by putting away excuses for our lack of engagement with other unbelievers. Notice it says, have a heart that is alert. The, verse, <coughs> the word answer there in verse 15, it's, the word apologia, from which we get our word apologetics, meaning a sensible defense. It doesn't mean a panic to defense, that I have to defend God and prove everything about Him. But a sensible, this is why I believe what I think and believe. It's not that every Christian has to be able to win every debate with every non-Christian. That's not what the Bible calls us to. Sometimes we're intimidated by speaking about Jesus with others because we're afraid they may prove us wrong. Truth doesn't fear being challenged, because truth is truth, and that does not change. And so when we're rooted in truth ourselves, one of the reasons that we sometimes struggle to speak to others about Christ or to speak to others in a confident way about Christ is because our confidence is lacking. Not because we haven't studied all the right theology books or we have all the right um, outlines or we have all the right facts, 
Sometimes it's simply because we don't know Jesus in a personal way. Like, man, you don't have to know every physical aspect to make up a composition of your wife to defend her, do you? There's a deep knowledge and love, should be towards your spouse, a deep knowledge and love of one another, a personal knowledge, and from that, a desire then to lift them up in front of others or whatever it may be, and when the opportunity arises to defend them, maybe physically or just to lift them up, you don't have to know every detail about you don't have to know their blood pressure. You don't have to know their heart rate. You don't have to know their sleeping heart rate. You don't have to know their, I was going to say height and weight. You definitely don't have to know either one of those. You don't have to know a lot of things about your spouse to know that you deeply love them, why you love them, and what it is that has affected your life so much in your relationship with them. The same is true of your witness for Christ. Yes, we should gain knowledge as we walk through His Word. We should, there is some study that should be involved But there's also a personal knowledge and a love, a desire to be motivated to teach others about Him. Let me give you this quick note and then we'll start wrapping up. Notice it says a quick note on methods of evangelism. (coughs) We're going to use a few terms here. They're not coined. There's nothing, none of these are in Scripture. I'm just going to give them to you. Modern historical methods of evangelism that the church has used, just for idea. And it doesn't mean that these shouldn't be used. But I think it means that we cannot exclude one for the other, and we're going to talk about it in a second. In fact, I want you to start with this. Historical method and focus of Scripture, this is a second little set of blanks, you can call it this, you can call it relationship evangelism, some have called it network evangelism, I'll explain what that means in a moment, it's not as modern and techy as it sounds, it just means very simply, those that God brings into the relationships of your lives you are responsible to give them the gospel of Christ. And and you are always called to those things. Now there's two others at the top that you can put modern historical methods. And again, this is not saying that any of these are wrong. It's just in the last, if you go back 150 years maybe, you can't find them as prevalent. Well, we'll go back a little further. Let's say the last 400 years or so can't find them as prevalent, and that is, I'm just going to phrase them in very loose terms, big events to draw people to teach them about Christ, big events, and what we'll call, I'm going to use, for lack of a better phrase, cold calling, meaning just out of the blue, just going somewhere. Now, hear me right, neither one is wrong. There's nothing wrong with either one. The church should utilize both of these things. However, there is a problem in a church that relies on only those two things. That should not be. It should not be that we are having a big event and I'm just going to somebody random to tell them about Christ. Both are good. Don't hear me wrong. Both are excellent. They're wonderful. And God calls us to speak to anyone about Him that we can. But the example that we find in Scripture most often is people telling others that they know about the God that they know. And so if you do big events and just speaking out, again, I don't mean it in the wrong sounding, cold calling, if you do those two, but do not witness to those that God has brought into your relational world, your network, then something's missing. And you cannot do the two without being burdened to do the one. So notice it says it recognizes 
and relies on the sovereignty of God in our lives and our interactions. It has historical precedent in the church. It promotes faithfully, consistently, patiently persevering in evangelism. So let me ask you, who? Fill it in. You have these, what are some of the most common networks of people that we have? Familial, meaning people that you're related to. Geographic, who do you live near? Vocational, who do you work with? Uh, recreational, meaning who do you um, <clears throat> who do you do other forms of life with your hobbies, whatever it may be? And then commercial, in the sense of who are you going after? The the the, um, the relationships that you seek out to build, and there should be someone in each of these relational networks that you're seeking to witness to and give the gospel. What some practical ways that we can do that? You can write a name under each one. Who's a family member? Who's someone you live near? Who's someone you work with? Who's someone you have interaction with recreationally? And then who is someone that God has brought into your path at a park, a waitress at a restaurant, uh, somebody that helped you at the store? Who's somebody that God has brought into your path? That, that, that There was some level of relationship that was built that you can work toward. <coughs> some practical steps. Excuse me. Pray for them. Invite them. Now that means inviting them does not mean just invite them just to church. It means invite them to your home. Sit with a meal. Show hospitality. Invite them to eat with you. Invite them to a church service. Invite them into your life and minister to them. Serve them. And these little blanks out beside are you list personally what you want to do. Let's just challenge yourself this week. Let's say in the next two weeks. Who are you going to be praying for? Who, and, who are you going to invite? What are you going to invite them to? Who, who are you going to serve? And how are you going to do it? Give resources to them. That becomes a little bit more difficult. You're like, but I might. But what if they burn me on that? There's a very specific verse in Scripture which Jesus gives a nice little parable. It says, when you invite to your banquet, don't invite all the rich, wealthy people that then are going to be indebted to you for coming to your banquet. He says, go out and invite poor people in which you know they can never repay the kindness and the love that you're going to show them. He says it in a parable form. What is he saying? Give with no expectation of return. Because we don't live in a kingdom built in this world. We live in a kingdom built by God. And share the gospel. It's supposed to be with them. A little typo there. Share the gospel with them. And you see some action steps. Don't stop praying. Exercise your faith with wisdom. The Bible says that we live to wisdom, especially with wisdom, especially to those that are without. Think through consciously. How are we giving the gospel? Because sometimes somebody looks at a church and says, well, what is their program of witnessing? And there's some things that we want to do. There's some gospel days that we want to do as we get warmer and we go out as a group. In, in, in the spring and everything, we want to go out and invite people, tell them the gospel as a group, going out, reaching to, having an event that we bring people to, uh, trying to introduce ourselves to people in our community. Because let me think, if you were lost without the gospel, imagine having no hope, would you care where that hope came from? Like, does it have to come from a family member? Does it have to come from someone? If someone's going to give hope, I'll take it from anywhere. So we should be doing both of those. But it also, the church should be doing it individually as members. We are all members of the same body. So what we do and want to do as a whole, we should also be doing individually. And then finally, let's 
look at this, and I'm just going to, most of it's just given to you there. I'm just going to kind of read through it and wrap it up. We should also be sending. Part of witnessing is we should be sending others. You have Acts 11 through 15 there that's referenced. You can look through it for time's sake tonight. We're not going to read all of those portions, but you see a model by the church at Antioch and how they were called to, or how they then were used by God to turn the world upside down for Christ, how they were used to reach the known world. Uh, in fact, turn there with me. We'll read just three verses and be three or four verses and be done. Look at you first at Acts 11. Are we committed to Christ's mission? How do you know if you're committed to Christ's mission as a church? Are we as individuals doing the mission? Are we encouraging other individuals in the church to do God's mission? Are we empowering each other to do God's mission? And do we care so much to do God's mission that we send others out from our midst? We give resources to send others out and we join and we partner to send them in giving to them. How do we know if we're committed to Christ's mission? Are we discipling, number two, are we discipling believers? The early church sought accountability, instruction, encouragement of every believer. They did not just say, let's just get people in here and fill the seats. No, there's personal interaction with people. God has helped me grow. And I want to help you grow. God has worked in my life. And I would love to see Him work in your life. A church that does not disciple one another, long-term Christians or new Christians, specifically new Christians, church that does not disciple, does not have God's mission at heart. Do we show mercy? <clears throat> Meaning here, at the end of Acts 11, look at verse 27, down there if you would. It says, uh, Acts, that's 10, Acts 11, verse 27. In these days came prophets from Jerusalem to Antioch, preachers, and there stood up one of them named Agabus, signified by the Spirit that there should be a great dearth throughout all the world, which came to pass in the days of Claudius Caesar. So dearth means it's a famine. Um, they're not going to have what they need to eat. Then verse 29, the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren that which dwelt in Judea. Judea is a very um, agricultural area of the world. They relied on agriculture. So when there's a famine... They're lacking finance. They're lacking resource. And they were already being shut out <coughs> by other Jews that did not believe in Christ. And they're struggling. So it says, which also they did, and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas to Saul. What does this mean? They heard of a need. They had the ability to provide. So they did that. It says, every man as he was able to do, gave to the good of God's glory. And last... A couple of things. Notice verse chapter 13. We'll be done. Acts 13. You see there it says pursue diversity. And hear me well when I say this. This is not some form of tokenism. Meaning we have to have people of all shapes and sizes and looks and creeds and backgrounds and we have to have this so that we have rights so we can check off the box. No, I want you to see the church at Antioch. And this is what the church should call it. The church should reflect the community that is around it. If God is using them to save their community, the church should look like 
their community. Notice verse number one. <clears throat> now there were in the church that was at Antioch, notice this phrasing, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, Simeon that was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaean, which had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Think about those descriptions. Barnabas, we know from other places in Scripture, he was a Cypriot Jew. Simeon, who is, it says who is called Niger, the translation there of Greek, it means to be dark. Lucius of Cyrene, that's a country in North Africa. Minion, it says who was, notice this, who was brought up with or brought up from uh, Herod. The word brought up literally means he came from the lineage of, notice this, Herod the Tetrarch. Remember Herod the Tetrarch we talked about last week in Matthew? This is Herod Antipas. And then you have Saul. So notice the descriptions there. You have Cypriot Jew, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene or North Africa, and then you have a man from an upper class relative of the of a king, and then you have Saul, who's a Jewish believer, uh, but of Roman also of Roman descent. The leadership reflected the membership of an active church body that just sought to bring anyone and everyone to Jesus. There was no. Uh, schism among this particular church as there were in others. They did not seek others that were like them. They did not seek others they agreed with. They did not seek others because they were of the same class. They didn't seek others of the same opinion. They didn't seek others of any other reason other than God loves them and wants to save them. And the church should pursue the same thing. And then we send missionaries. And you have that there in 13, 1 through 3. They send these out from among them, when they had fasted and prayed, they sent them away. And that is that is not easy, is it? To send people from within your midst to go to plant churches, to give the gospel around the world. You see there finally, the, of course, the church at Antioch planted churches in alignment with God's purpose because this was his great commission. See, it says Paul began with urban church planting and the gospel spread to all regions. What I mean by that is Paul focused on Areas where people live, large areas for his time time period, a church would be established and then it would grow to the regions around it and spread in that way. And we as a church should desire to have the same things be true of us. That we as individuals are reaching out. That we as a team and a body are reaching out. And that we are sending out our ability, our finances. Some do... um, meet needs by good deeds. Some meet needs by giving resource, whatever it may be. And we're all called for this purpose, not to gather for ourselves, but to live for Christ. And we do that by sharing the gospel individually and corporately, and then by empowering everyone that we can and have the ability to, to take it where we cannot go. And that's the mission of ourselves as the church. All right, we're going to be dismissed this evening in just a moment in a word of prayer, but I hope that you'll be back with us next week again. Celebrating the Lord's Supper together, and then we have a a church fellowship right afterwards. We're asking everyone to bring, uh, all of our church members to bring a a main dish, a side, and a dessert. We don't always do that. A lot of times we have food prepared or we bring it in from somewhere. Uh, But next week particularly, we're going to be asking you to bring Whatever your best recipe is, and uh, or most exotic and odd and weird food, uh, bring those. Next week would be fine, and uh, bring enough for yourself and a little to share. Main dish side and a dessert, and you can drop those off before.